some good news. I guess it's good news. I don't, I don't, I don't know. We're in John 4. We're actually moving ahead in the Gospel of John, although John 3 was incredibly um, rich. And I, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't mind going through it again. Um, it's such a wonderfully full passage, a chapter in this incredibly full uh, book. And, um, you know, I know that, that Ken, Ken says the Gospel of John is his favorite book, right? And the more I'm reading it, the more I understand why. Um, and the more it's really, it, it, to me, all of it's my favorite, but that doesn't make any sense, though, does it? But nonetheless, this is becoming a favorite. Uh, as I'm reading it more, considering it more. We're just going to look at a couple of verses this morning. What else is new? Um, Here in John 4, we have a rather lengthy section to go through that we might even take in one chunk next week where you have this conversation uh, between Jesus and the woman at the well uh, there in Sychar in Samaria. But this morning, I just wanted to to kind of look at the transition piece that's written here in the first few verses of John chapter 4. I'm going to go ahead and read to you out of the New American Standard 2020. Um, And uh, really, I'm just going to look at verses 1 through 4, but I will read to you verses 1 through 6 just to get some context. So, So then when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, rather his disciples were. He left Judah, and he went away again to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Or you could read that he needed to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired from his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning and that you would cause us to see in this short little passage, some incredible examples of how you lived your life while you were ministering here on earth. And that those are examples by which we're to live our lives here on earth as well. So we pray, Lord, that you would just give us understanding and grant us the ability to hear what the Spirit would say to each of us today. So we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your Spirit that we might receive from you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So so then when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard uh, that he was making and baptizing more disciples in John, uh, kind of interesting, this idea of The Lord knew this. I'll get into that in a second. But the way this is framed, that that once the Lord knew that the Pharisees were aware of his ministry on the increase, that's what it's saying. Now, as we 
go through this gospel as we have read through other gospels. We know that the Pharisees were really not too happy with Jesus. And eventually it comes to a head, really in Matthew chapter 23, we have those declarations, those woes to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are an interesting group. I'm not going to go into a, a lot of extent uh, about who they were. They had a fairly long history. They were traditionalist, but they were also those who were attempting to keep the Jewish culture alive. I actually did some reading on this last night on in reading... Uh, on a book about the Mishnah, which is really the oral tradition uh, of the Hebrews, of the Jews. And they were attempting to keep their culture alive. And the thing is, is that their culture was all centered around their faith. And their calling as God's people. Now, of course, they weren't real obedient, but that didn't always really matter to them, did it? They identified with the temple. They identified with Torah. Torah is translated law. Although Jews, even in secular Judaism, for lack of a better way to describe it, they understand that Torah means the teaching, the instruction. And it was the means by which a Jew were t- was to live and how they were t- to distinguish themselves from the nations around them. Later, how they distinguished, distinguished themselves from the nation that they were in exile at. In other words, how they distinguished themselves from the Babylonians. The book of Daniel really gets into that to some degree as well. And so the Pharisees were really interested in maintaining a national identity, among other things, among other things. But they were focusing on being people who were pure, people who were pure before God. And they strived very hard to keep Torah And actually, they used Torah in such a way that it no longer became a teaching. It became a law. And then they added to it. That's what some, not all, this is important. Don't don't mishear this. That's what some of the Mishnah was about, where they were adding to the law. The oral tradition, which in, if you've read much of the Old Testament, particularly if you've read much of Torah, There's almost the necessity to have some type of an oral tradition by which some of this is translated or interpreted or understood or lived out practically. And says that Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And when he knew that, it says that he leaves Judea. Now remember the, frame, the framework of, uh, this is still in, in Jesus' very early ministry, in the early part of the Gospel of 
John, in chapter, the early part of chapter 3, I should say, he's in Jerusalem. He's talking to Nicodemus. Later in that chapter, what? It says that he goes into Judea, possibly the, the countryside or some of the smaller towns outside of Jerusalem. And John had continued his ministry, that is, John the Baptist had continued his ministry in the region of Samaria, in that area between, kind of almost on the border of Samaria and the southern Galilee region. So it's interesting to me, and I'm going to get back to this in a moment, but it's interesting to me that once Jesus knows that the Pharisees have heard about this, that he leaves and he, go, he starts to head north. And of all places, he goes right through Samaria. So I have to think, remember in, earlier in the Gospel of John where the delegation of the Jews came to John the Baptist and they wanted to know who he was? That was probably with hostile intent. The, 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 the scriptures don't tell us particularly there what, exactly what was going on, but it was probably with hostile intent. And so Jesus was probably picking up on, on, on this hostile intent of the Pharisees already. And so he goes to Samaria. Well, those people aren't even Jews. Well, they're kind of half Jews. Samaria, also known as the Northern Kingdom, when the Northern Kingdom was, was conquered by the Assyrians in 722, the Assyrians came in and they took a lot of the residents of that land, many of those in the Northern Kingdom, the ten tribes, and they deported them. And they made them go live somewhere else. And in some of those areas that they had conquered, areas such as Babylon, for example. They brought people from those regions that they had deported out of their homeland and made them live in Samaria. They were a bunch of half-breeds. Now, the classical thinking, teaching, and you probably have heard this before. I think I probably have taught this before that the Jews and the Samaritans had little, if anything, to do with each other. And that really posed a problem, particularly for those in Judea, the southern kingdom, because if they wanted to go to the northern region of the Galilee, which was primarily Jewish, Samaria lied between the two places. In other words, they had to go through Samaria to get to the Galilee. Now think about the Pharisees. They were the purest, right? And when they walked through the marketplaces at times, they would grab their robe and they would grab it really tightly around themselves like they were cold. I know some of you can't relate, but that's okay. But they grabbed the robe like they were cold, but they didn't want their robe to possibly touch an unclean person. So just in case, they would, do, they would do things like that, right? They were the ultra-religious. They were the traditionalists. They were the legalists. 
So the story about the Jews, all of them, is that they would not pass through Samaria. That they would do the end around. That they would cross the Jordan somewhere around Jericho, proceed north, and just south of the Sea of Galilee, they would cross the Jordan again and get into the region of the Galilee. Because they didn't want to go through Samaria. That is probably true about some of them. That very much could be true, could be true, about the Pharisees, because they don't want to go through unclean Gentile territory. But what's ironic about this, who resides on the eastern side of the Jordan? Gentiles. Samaritans or Gentiles? Take your pick. Now, what's interesting, because I did some digging on this, because it, it really has become an urban myth that you hear in churches. Josephus basically said a lot of the Jews said, I'm not bothering with crossing the Jordan twice. I'm going to go right through uh, um, Samaria. So much has been made about, in, particularly in an evangelical teaching, about, about the Jews and the Samaritans. And I, I, like I said, I've taught this before, that they would go out of their way not to go through Samaria, but in reality that may be true only for some of them. Because Josephus in Antiquities says that it was, the preferred route was still to go through Samaria. So I'll smash one of your urban evangelical myths. How's that? But it makes sense that if you're trying to get away from the Pharisees, what's the best place to get do? What's the best place to go to get away from the Pharisees? Go hang out with the Samaritans, because they didn't want to have anything to do with those folks. If you want to get away from legalistic Christians, where do you do? What do you, where do you do? Where do you go? You hang out with the sinners. I mean, really, that's what's going on here. Or if you want to get away from sinners, you go hang out with the saints, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of our nature. Jesus knew. Now, the ESV and the NIV does not use the word knew as in knowledge. It says he learned. When the Lord learned or when Jesus learned, that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. I thought that was fascinating. It's the Greek word gnosko. Um, and gnosko really means to acquire information by some means. That's what it means, to acquire information by some means. It can mean to acquire information because you've learned it or you've found out about it. How did Jesus find out about the fact that the Pharisees had now heard that his ministry was on the rise? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us, does it? Could it have been some type of experience, I'm going to humanize Jesus for a minute. I know some, that some of you, it makes you a bit uncomfortable because he was always God. I've said this last week. I didn't change my mind, all right? He was always God. I believe he was always self-aware of who he is. 
but he's also human. I think this is where it gets above our pay grade. If you think you've got it figured out, great, but I, I'm, I'm, I haven't heard a good explanation yet. That's all right. But it could be an experience that Jesus had that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where Jesus might have gotten a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. It's possible. Or he might have read it in the paper. Or seen it on the news. I mean, we don't know how he found out. He, he, it could have been very well that the, 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 the Holy Spirit may have revealed this to him. Because what I find fascinating about the ministry of Jesus while on earth is that you have this interrelation going on between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew tells us, I think it's Matthew 4, that, the, that right after Jesus was baptized that he was driven into the wilderness by whom? The Holy Spirit. That he received the things from the Father. We'll look at that again in just a moment. But he received the things from the Father, and those th- were the things that he would tell us. Now, did he do the miracles that he did on his own power? Yeah, I think he, I think he did. I think he did. He never stopped being God. But as I mentioned to you last week, when I mention Jesus, I'm also referring to the Holy Spirit. When I mention the Holy Spirit, I'm also referring to God the Father. When I mention the God the Father, I'm also referring to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There's this, this incredible triunity that really is very hard to slice and dice. And I think that slicing and dicing of who does what, when, and how really is probably above our pay grade. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was that way in the beginning. He is that way today. Nothing's changed, okay? But I find it fascinating, this, this kind of this integration that's going on. Jesus knew, Jesus learned, that the Pharisees heard about him making disciples and baptizing more than John. Now, what's interesting about this word gnosko, this idea that he knew, is also in a perfect tense. Excuse me, an imperfect tense. Remember what I said? What was? And John likes to use the imperfect because it is an action in process or a state of being that is occurring, occurring in the past. Notice I didn't say occurred. It's occurring in the past. John uses this quite a bit in John chapter 3, if you remember. Occurring in the past with, with no assessment of, of, of the action's completion. An action or a process and the state of being that is occurring in the past is occurring in the past. Really, this, John even uses this when he's talking about creation. An imperfect tense that Jesus knew because he knew this. When did he find, when did he know this? We're going to get real theological about this this morning. He knew this before the foundation of the world. But then John tells us that he's in the Judean countryside, possibly, and he learns 
that the Pharisees have found him out. Now, which is true? Do I have some of you confused yet? Good. They're both true. They're both true. How does that work? I'm not sure. How does the Trinity work? I'm not sure. But nonetheless, we have these incredible declarations of who Jesus is, that he was with God and he was God. He is now with God and he, present tense, is God. Okay? I'm hardcore in the deity of Christ and I'm hardcore in the Trinity even though I can't totally explain it. I know the Bible declares it. He found out. He knew. What's interesting that this knowledge is really coupled with another word that I want to I want to kind of hammer in on this morning too. Where it says that he needed or he I think the old King James says he must need, verse 4. The new King James says he needed. It's the Greek word ido. This idea of necessity. He learned and he developed this idea of necessity that he must go through Samaria. But before I get too far ahead of myself, he was making disciples and he was baptizing It's a present tense verb. It's an action in the process or a state of being that has no assessment of completion. So they were out there making disciples, and it tells us that he was not baptizing, that his disciples were doing the baptizing. That makes sense to me because it foreshadows Matthew 28. Matthew 28, before Jesus ascended. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. I I see this as almost as a primer as a foreshadowing of what we call the Great Commission. That we have been called to make disciples. A disciple is simply a follower of Jesus. I'm not going to get too involved in that uh, this morning because we we went quite a bit in, in communion. But to make a follower of Jesus and to baptize them. I read more about baptism than you probably might even want to know. It's really, it's taken from, and there are, when when you start reading uh, Jewish history, particularly after Malachi, up until that time of the 5th century A.D., Follow me? 500 years after Jesus? It's kind of hard to fit some of the pieces together. All right? But baptism, from the best I can tell, and there are different arguments on this, that the Jews, when someone would convert to Judaism, when a Gentile would convert to Judaism, 
one of the things that they were required to do was do a ceremonial type of cleansing or washing known as a mikvah in the Hebrew. It was actually a type of immersion. Now, this idea of cleansing really goes back to Torah because a person could become ceremonially unclean. And so they would have to to take a ceremonial type of of baths, of, of of a washing, of a cleansing, so that they could do things like what? Come into the temple. The word baptism here literally means to dip, to soak, or even to cleanse. And it's done with the intention that the, the, the item that is dipped or the thing that is dipped or the person that is dipped, we'll go there, all right, takes on the characteristics of what has been dipped into. For example, if you want to dye leather, back then particularly, what did you do? You took leather like a leather hide, and you would dip it into a dye. Let it sit there for however long, and it would change the color, and it would, the, it would, it would react to the, to the dye that it was in, and it would change the color. A better example is in a Greek recipe. Somebody, they found a Greek recipe for making, of all things, pickles. And essentially, I'm going to just real quick, you would take cucumbers and you would immerse them, baptize them, dip them, the same Greek word, baptizo, and you would put them in the solution for however long. I don't know, I've never made pickles, right? And eventually, when you took the cucumbers out of the solution, what did you have? You had pickles. You had pickles. Because the cucumber took on the characteristic of that which it was baptized into. So that's where I think what's important about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is that we receive the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, which I, which I different views on this, but, but I see it more at, 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 uh, at happening at the time of when we are born again, yet there are other views on that as well that I, I don't want to get into this morning. But we begin, and when we are saved, we begin to take on the characteristic of the Holy Spirit. Who speaks of whom? Come on, you guys know this. Speaks of Jesus. In other words, when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you become more Christ-like. That's what it's saying. Romans 6 Colossians 2, talk about baptism really as an introductory rite into the Christian faith where we're buried with him him in baptism and then we are raised to walk in newness of life. It's the identification. And that's what the Jews understood as well was this idea of baptism or cleansing or purifying was this idea of identifying with God. Matter of fact, in 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 the Talmud, which is a commentary on the Mishnah, which is the oral traditions of the Torah. You follow me so far? 
In the Talmud, you have one section that is dedicated just to ceremonial cleansings. One full section. And this idea of being baptized in their thinking was this identification with something new, something different. We, are, we identify with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ when we're baptized in water. And that's why I think, I think immersion makes the most sense. Because we're buried under the water, ra- uh, uh, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Okay. A little different than John's baptism, which John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. But essentially, John's baptism is when they repented, which means what? What does it mean to repent? Change direction. You're going this way, I'm repenting, now I'm going to go that way. All right? A change of direction, a change of focus, a change of goals, a change of vision. I hate to say it, but I will say it. Changing your mind. Because I think that almost cheapens it. And John John the Baptist baptized those who were received a baptism of repentance. And then once Jesus died on the cross and resurrected and then ascended, that's why you see the necessity in Acts chapter 19 of those who needed to be baptized in the Lord, name of the Lord Jesus because they were called to identify with him. Does baptism save you? No. No, it doesn't. I don't believe it does. I think in a sense it seals the deal because you are displaying outwardly what has happened with you inwardly but a willingness to follow Jesus to such a degree that you're willing to demonstrate it physically and saying, now I'm entering into the faith. I'm now a follower of Jesus. I'm now walking in newness of life. It's an identifying with Christ. So, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing more than John. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me because what? What did John say in the previous chapter? He must, must. Same word, by the way, is needed in verse 4 of uh, John 4, which I'll get to in a second. He must increase, and I... Notice must is in italics because it's not there. I must decrease. And that's exactly what is happening here. Jesus is increasing. John is decreasing. He's fulfilling his ministry. He's about to be ushered off the scene. What a way to be ushered off the scene. What a horrible way to be ushered off the scene. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? John was arrested, eventually beheaded. But he was able to see him come and the one who descended into Hades and to take captivity captive and to be set free finally by the Lord Jesus Christ after the Lord died for not only our sins but also for the sins of John the Baptist. So he sets out 
of the Galilee. The problem is the only way to, well, the problem is that unless you're going to take a long route, Josephus tells us that the walk from Jerusalem to Galilee normally took about three days, all right, which I find interesting. He decided to go to the Galilee. He begins his Galilean ministry. Why did he go? Why didn't he stay and deal with the Pharisees? Could it have been that what we saw already in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, verse 4, at the wedding feast of, uh, in Capernaum, when Mary wanted Jesus to do something about the fact they'd ran out of wine. Can you imagine how, what a tragedy that must have been? Um, we'll let that go. But anyway, but yeah, it was embarrassing in, in that culture. It was, if you ran out of wine at a wedding feast, you, that was embarrassing, right? Remember what Jesus told Mary? My hour's not yet come. My hour is not, you're, you're pushing me before my hour it has come. He will talk about this from time again in, in actually all the Gospels. We'll see it again in the Gospel of John. It's this idea that his hour had not yet come, and so he at times, I think, would avoid the confrontation because he had more work to do, and his time had not yet come. So it says in the New American Standard, in the 2020 one that I have, it says he had to pass through Samaria. Or as the King James, or excuse me, the New King James says, he needed to go through Samaria. And he could have gone around, right? Could have gone around. What's interesting is this word in the Greek, this word needed, this very important word. It really refers to this idea, follow me on this. It really refers to the necessity, something that is of necessity. Something, it's, it's not an optional thing, it's needful. And it, it's something that has been established, essentially, by the counsel and the decree of God. So God essentially is, is saying, this is something that must happen. Again, the old King James, I said, I think uses the phrase, he need, must go through, go to, uh, go through Samaria. And so there was something established by the counsel and decree of God, a divine agenda that Jesus was sensitive to and saw the opportunity. And, and, you know, yes, we have the mind of Christ, but my goodness, is it so beyond ours? Because he has a divine appointment with a woman in a small little town known as Sychar. And he's going to share with her the faith. She's actually really the first one, uh, really, that goes out and wholeheartedly fulfills the Great Commission. 
because she goes back to town. We'll talk about this next week. She goes back to town and says, you've got to come meet this guy. But it was something that was needful. It was something that was necessary. It's the same word that's used in John chapter 9, verse 4, where he says, I must work the works of him, referring to the Father, who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. I must work the works. It wasn't optional. It was required of him because he always did those things, not only that the Father said, but he did those things that pleased the Father. Because the Trinity of God is so tightly connected in purpose, in plan, and in execution of those things. Let me wrap this up. He learned... He knew, he got possibly a word of knowledge. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22, talks about this where he, the Lord is, is, is indicting Judah. He says, for my people are foolish. They have not known me. They're foolish, they have not known me. Hosea chapter 4, I think it's verse 6, says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people are foolish, Jeremiah says. They have not known me. They are silly children, and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil. Doesn't that sound strange? They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. But to do good, they have no knowledge. This, this, to me, just underscores what Paul was saying in the book of Philippians where he says that, 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 that I may know him, that I may know him, gnosko, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may have this experiential knowledge of who he is, including the fellowship of his sufferings. Because it's by knowing God that we understand the necessities of God for our life. Does that make sense? You see, that's why I really think what Jesus is modeling here for us. Now, it's important to understand, too, that we have a dependency upon the Holy Spirit that if he did have, it was a willing voluntary subjection to. Again, he's he, not a junior God on earth. Not a junior God. It's important to understand that. The works he did, he did himself, okay? Under his own power. Again, but the cooperation of the Trinity. But as we know God... That's why I think Bible study is so important. As we know God, as we know his character, as we know what's going on around us, if, as we are able to know God and therefore to see the world through his eyes, then we begin to understand the necessity. Then we begin to understand the difference between, as a guy I know used to say, the difference between needs and wants. 
as we know God, we're able to hear the still small voice. We're able to hear the invitation of God speaking into our hearts so that we might, if we are called to do so, march straight through Samaria. Enemy territory. There's a lot of stuff about the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans that I might just say for next week. But I'm not going to get into it today. But to even march through enemy territory because God has a purpose, God has a plan, and God has a woman who was the most unlikely person. Been married six times. Living with a guy. Lord, couldn't you pick somebody else? No. Because of the necessity of the Spirit of God touching the heart of that incredible woman. That's what fascinates me. She was the key to the city of Sychar. Not the rulers, not the elders, not the the religious people, not the fanatics, but the woman who couldn't keep a man. Six times married, now living with a guy. But Jesus used, and and I've got to save it for next week, but anyway. Jesus uses that encounter to minister to a little town. And I think beyond. And in doing so, ministers to us. Because remember, you want to get away from religious people, go hang out with the sinners. Because that's what Jesus did. Now take that with a grain of salt, but nonetheless... That's what he did. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it, it really, uh, with the, the turn of every page in your Bible, in your word, with every situation and occurrence, you have so much to teach us. You have so much to instruct us. So Lord, help us to continue to glean that we may know you, the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings, and that we might be able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speak into our hearts about the things that are needful in our lives. That we would be like Mary rather than Martha who was aware of the needful thing that would not be denied her and that was that opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus. We thank you for your people. We pray that you'd bless them this week. That you would minister to them and minister through them. For your great name's sake we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys.